Welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. This is your home for progressive, thought-provoking real talk in the chiropractic profession. Featuring the legends, the innovators, and the thought leaders that move our profession forward. And now your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. Welcome, everyone, to Forward, the podcast, the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. Just like the announcer said, my name is Dr. Bobby Maybe, and I'll be your host for this podcast. If you don't know what the FTCA is, the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance, you can check us out at forwardthinkingchiro.com. We also have an Instagram page, which is FTCA underscore official. And then there's the legendary Facebook group, the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. On the website for a measly seven bucks a month, you can be a member, get listed on our map. And that map gets referrals, by the way, so it's totally worth your investment. Not only that, but we also have great webinars and deals and discounts and events and tons of other things to, that make it great to be a member of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. We have been called recently aggressively ethical, which I like. The FTCA is aggressively ethical. So if you're aggressively ethical too, come on over and join us at forwardthinkingchiro.com. Our sponsors for the podcast are The T-Tool. Check them out at thetool.com. It is a hand-saving, uh, multifunctional, instrument-assisted soft tissue modality tool. Check all out the demos and check out all the information about The T-Tool. Highly recommend it. I use it in my office. It's awesome. If you want to 10X your IASTM game, check out the soft tissue cream from our next sponsor, China Gel at chinagel.com. China Gel's got a great line of products, uh, but I really, really like their soft tissue cream. I use it with my T-Tool with every patient that needs what I am offering in that regard. And our next sponsor, the third sponsor of the podcast is Parker Seminars. You can be the storm at Parker Seminars XR 2020. That's coming up October 2nd through the 4th, and you can check it out at parkerseminars.com. Parker Seminars XR is a digital event like no other. And these guys are good. So for continuing education, if you're going to do it online, if you're going to do it digitally, quote unquote virtually, uh, this is definitely the place to be. October 2nd through the 4th, check it out at parkerseminars.com. Okay. Our guest today is a fellowship trained spine surgeon and specializes in all medical conditions related to the spine, including degenerative, deformity, trauma, cervical lumbar arthroplasty, and minimally invasive spine surgery. He's a long-term resident of San Antonio, Texas, and welcomes patients to the clinic who struggle with spine pain and who are looking for a solution. Growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana, it wasn't until he attended Medical Careers Magnet Program in high school that he envisioned a life outside of the streets of Louisiana as a doctor. To make this dream a reality, our guest joined the United States Air Force at age 17 and spent a total of eight years as a medic and LVN in the military, including a tour in North Baghdad, Iraq in 2005, to a forward operating base dubbed Mortarville for the frequency of mortar attacks it endured. His unit treated just over 800 patients while in country and survived over 100 enemy mortar attacks during their deployment while also earning several medals of distinction in the process. Our guest was fortunate to spend time and learn operating under the guidance of Dr. Kay Wilkins in Port-au-Prince, Haiti on two separate occasions. And in 2018, he was awarded an AO trauma fellowship that allowed him to spend a month long time frame doing trauma and spine surgery in Bangkok, Thailand. So please enjoy our interview with Dr. Antonio Webb, MD. It's a good one. I think you'll really like it. And finally, finally, you know, we got 
Parker Seminars as a sponsor. I just want to say this as a little editorial. And they go heavy on the Navy because of Dr. Morgan. But finally, around here, we're going to get some Air Force love with Dr. Antonio Webb. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. First and foremost, Dr. Webb, I respect the hell out of you, my friend. And you can take that however you want, but that's just how I'm starting this podcast. Uh, hopefully people check out your YouTube channel and get your story. And from what you just told me, there's a documentary coming out too. What's that all about? Yeah, thank you and uh, for having me and uh, as, as a guest on your show. You know, it, it's uh, definitely an honor to uh, speak with you tonight. But essentially the documentary, um, you know, it's essentially about my life story, about growing up um, in Shreveport, Louisiana, and a few of the things that I kind of went through. I just wanted to uh, chronicle that in a, um, in a video. Um, you know, a lot of people that grow up in my area, that grew up in my area, or, or you know, grow up now, uh, face a lot of obstacles and challenges. And uh, I just wanted to be some, you know, some inspiration to those people that are kind of still going or live in similar kind of environments. Yeah. Shreveport's a uh, tough town. No doubt about it. Um, yep. When I was, when I was in the air force, just like you, uh, one of the things I did was I was on the air force, the basketball team that traveled around from base to base. And okay. Shreve, of yeah. course, Shreveport's got its own air force base and we would travel over there and play uh, a couple games a year. And I always, even as a young kid, I always put in the back of my mind how tough a town that would have been to grow up, grow up in, like, get a little empathy for the people who had to come up in that town and try to make their way out of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I wish I would have had the opportunity to play basketball for the, uh, you know, that, that team. You know, I, my head was uh, trying to get into the books, trying to finish uh, all my pre-med studies while I was on uh, active duty. But, uh, yeah, and I know a lot of guys who, a lot of friends who uh, play um, in that similar kind of uh, league. Yeah, that's what ended it for me. It was like, um, where's this going to go? You know, it's not going to go anywhere. So it's time to get into some books. And uh, yeah, I think I continue. I finished most of my pre-med stuff in, in the military too. What a great opportunity, right? That they, that the government and the military provides for you to go to school and serve your country at the same time. It was, it was pretty awesome. It was a great, a great treat. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, um, it, it was definitely challenging. I'm not sure how much of schooling you were able to do while you were active duty, but um, I went to school like at nighttime or, you know, weekends, internet courses. And it, it took me seven years to get my um, undergrad, my bachelor's degree, but everything was paid for, you know, so yeah. um, I couldn't complain about that. You know, I just didn't sleep much, but <laughs> all my books are paid for, all the tuition and all that. But uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity, especially if you're active duty. This might not be in your mind space, but do you have a, an adult beverage of choice? Uh, I think lately I've been drinking a lot of um, um, a, lot, a lot of bourbon. All right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm not a big drinker overall. But you know, occasionally. Yeah, we're going to have two casuals here, you and me, and um, this conversation, open invitation for us to go back and forth. So I want you to be able to ask questions about chiropractic that you're concerned about or that you're curious about. And then uh -huh. we're going to ask these standard questions that chiros might want to ask their surgeon. Um, just so uh, we know that you can, you have an open invitation to be as inquisitive as you would like, if, that, okay. if that's a value to you. 
Yeah, first and absolutely. foremost, congratulations on graduating from fellowship. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, can you break down the path from being a someone who's studying undergrad, which chiropractors and surgeons both have gone through that journey. We both went through undergrad, but then discuss the journey after that and what it took to get you to graduate from fellowship. Yeah. So, you know, the typical path, I was a non-traditional student. The typical path is four years of uh, undergraduate studies um, and then four years of medical school. And then it's five years of general orthopedic uh, surgery training. And then you can do a one year optional fellowship. Um, and that's for orthopedic kind of routes. If you want to go into like pediatrics, the residency for pediatrics is only three years. Some internal medicine residencies are three years, some are four. Neurosurgery, it's like a seven year residency. And then some people do a, a fellowship after that. So that's kind of the traditional route. For me, you know, I struggled with the MCAT, which is the admission test for medical school. Um, and then me being on active duty, trying to um, go to school full time on active duty, my GPA suffered because of that. Sure. So um, I ended up doing a one year post vac program uh, before medical school. Uh, so I actually did it at Georgetown where I went to medical school. So I was there for five years uh, just to strengthen my application and uh, build on my science foundation. And then um, before that, I actually had to apply to medical school three times. So um, I got rejected every year that I applied, but kept applying, um, and, uh, actually quit my job when I got out the military, I worked in the, um, ICU. Um, I'm not sure if you did this as well, or if you knew about this, but in the military where we were able to challenge the California board of nursing and get our LVN um, license. I'm not sure if you, you were familiar with that, but. No, I was a couple of years ahead of you. So I don't know if that applied oh. to me specifically. Okay. Got you. So that's what I did. I got my LVN license and I, I, I worked in the ICU um, as an LVN while I was taking the MCAT and I actually stopped working there. We focused on the MCAT full time. And then um, it took me three years to get in and then got in and uh, went to medical school at Georgetown, did my residency at, um, here in San Antonio, and then a one-year fellowship at um, Texas Back in Plano, Texas, and then here now in um, private practice here. Uh, why didn't you quit? Why didn't you just give up? Oh, you know, that, you that's... No three, three times, man. Didn't you get the hint? No, I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, that's not in my kind of uh, nature <laughs> to, uh, I'm definitely not a quitter. You know, I always tell students, I give a lot of talks all over the U.S. Um, to students, pre-med students. Uh, my passion is kind of mentoring uh, disadvantaged students and students from, um, you know, backgrounds as mine. So when I talk to them, I always tell them that if it would have took me 10 years to get into medical school, I would have applied every single year because that's how bad I wanted to become a doctor. And um, I, I think if you want something that bad, you'll eventually get it. You just got to keep trying. So Absolutely. I would have kept trying, you know, so, you know, but, but what, what about the path? I'm kind of curious, kind of the path for uh, kind of your profession like, what is that? And that's why so. I asked the question. So it was a, we were leading into a, a, a topic. There is yeah. a thing that constantly goes around on social media in the chiropractic sphere. And it's like a, uh, it's a, it's a graphic, like it, 
the graphics always reproduced and, and rehashed. It's like reinventing the wheel over and over again of this really poor conversation where they try yep. to compare the hours that a chiropractor puts into school with the hours that a medical doctor puts into school to mm -hmm. sort of justify the education of a mm -hmm. chiropractor. It, it's, it's really sad. It's sort of like an inferiority complex thing. Sort of like, please look, we, we work just as hard, but we don't because those hours end when medical school and chiropractic school are over. And then, like mm -hmm. you said, there are many years left of residency and fellowship where the education, that's still just a bridge to the education. And then you still don't even learn anything until you're actually practicing is where the yeah. real education is, right? Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, it's a, it's a lifelong educational um, kind of process. You know, um, even after doing, I miss you how many years, you know, I've been training to do this. Uh, I'm still eager to learn, and um, you know that's why I was excited to be um, be a part of the uh, Forward Thinkers uh, your group, and uh, you know just the whole philosophy about you know chiropractic medicine. They don't teach us it the longest path. So um, my right. whole mindset. Yes. I'm a real conservative uh, person in terms of uh, surgery wise. You know I, I want to find out what's out there that can best uh you know um offer my patients and um and that's kind of been my journey over the last year or so just kind of looking into this because um you know as surgeons some surgeons you know that, that there's a that dichotomy there's some surgeons that don't believe in chiropractic medicine and some that do when i talk to my mentors and fellowship you know some just kind of shrug their shoulders and like no nah, i don't really know about that or you know some were really uh, supportive of it so that's when the light clicked to me. I was like, wow, um, I want to look into this and, you know, yeah, I don't, I know nothing gap. about it. So yeah, yeah I want to educate gap. myself. Yeah, absolutely. And in being in Texas yourself, you have somewhat of a disadvantage of the Texas Medical Association. And from my uh, anecdotal experience myself, the, the physicians of Texas aren't as up or supportive of chiropractic or conservative care as they would be elsewhere. For instance, um, here in Portland, Oregon, Oregon Health and Science University, they've for a long time tried to at least educate their medical students on integrative approaches and mm -hmm. the guidelines and the benefits and the things to look out for and things of that nature. But um, I, I, I mean, I have personal experience with social clubs that I'm in with medical physicians from Texas that are like, you know, they just almost like a caste system there's, mm -hmm. there's a somewhat of a, uh, it's a, it's a softer bigotry, but there's some sort of bigotry there that you tend to see a little bit more from specifically like Texas physicians that I've noticed. So it, it's a knowledge gap. And I think when we open up these gates and we have conversations, we can have um, some great, great conversations about what is and what isn't everything. Um, you know, for yeah. instance, we need to stop this conversation that the medical education and chiropractic education are synonymous or equal or even close to each other, because once we do that, we can be very honest of what chiropractic is missing, and that's a postgraduate uh, educational process, an internship, if, uh, any of those sort of things, which there are a few of them, but they're usually with the vet, the VA, uh, but they're glaringly mm -hmm. absent everywhere else. You have to be pretty lucky. There's like two or three or four students that'll graduate into those programs per year, which is not enough. Okay. And it, how does that process uh, work after you graduate uh, school? Do you go right into the workforce or is there yep. like a, you, um, 
you graduate and you there's a four-part boards so there's a board examination that comes in four parts it's typically a standard like clinical boards and then you've got uh well you've got your basic science tests in the part one boards and then there's like physiotherapy rehabilitation uh clinical mm -hmm. diagnosis examination process and then there's an actual clinical board exam that's a part four where there's uh, sample patients and, and actors to, to go through exam flows and differential diagnosis and things of that nature. And mm -hmm. then you would probably pass a typical jurisprudence. It depends from state to state, but a jurisprudence test uh, and get a license. Then they just throw you to the wolves. Yeah. Gotcha. I, you know, I guess some, some scenarios, that's the best way to learn. Um, but um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, there should be more of a collaboration between the uh, professions. You know, I, I think especially if we are taking care of very similar patients, um, that's kind of my hope is to uh, hopefully um, in, increase some of that collaboration. What do you think people in the chiropractic profession need to know about surgery that they might not know? You've talked to some students now in the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance Student Club. I'm sure you've talked to other chiropractors before. What is something mm -hmm. that they, you think that they need to really understand as far as, you know, like patient care or the ultimate goal? I mean, the ultimate goal is to get people out of pain and have them live functioning lives. But yeah. is there a piece that chiropractors are blindsided on that they just don't see because they're stuck in their offices and somewhat self-absorbed in their own profession? Uh, that they don't see a bigger picture. Do you do you get that feeling? Uh, possibly, I, I would think. Um, um, I would probably say the outside preparation that goes into planning a surgery or, um, you know, completing a surgery. I, I think it's some people outside of our profession. They may, hey, this person has a let's say a um, a left or a 360 fusion or a decompression uh, or a big scoliosis uh, posterior fusion um, that the surgeon just goes in, just do, does that surgery. Well, there, there's actually a lot of preparation that goes into it. You know, I have a surgery that's coming up here in probably about two weeks. And um, just tonight, just before this, I was actually preparing, um, you know, reading some operative notes, you know, going over some anatomy, um, looking at the patient's imaging, um, so I would probably say, I, I just don't think even my wife, she was like, why are you, your surgery's two weeks away? Well, why are you looking at it, you know, uh, so far in advance, but, um, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Um, I'm actually meeting with some, um, the medical sales uh, device reps to go over the implants. Um, they're coming to my clinic uh, next week. So th there's a lot of preparation. I'm not sure if a lot of people really appreciate or understand that and how much preparation goes actually into, um, you know, various procedures. That could be ubiquitous in healthcare. I, th I think a lot of people just assume that the physician or even the chiropractor or the PT just walks in and does what they do without some sort of uh, preparation or forethought or, you know, I try to explain to my patients the most important thing that we do when we meet is going to be the history and the examination. That is probably the most important. The second most important is going to be the education that I provide you to take care of yourself and become self-sufficient. And then probably yeah. the third most important thing would be the actual physical hands-on stuff that I do. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then we discuss like 
your priorities might be different, but for me, that is the most important thing because coming up with a proper diagnosis first determines what we're going to do or if we're going to send you out and all that other stuff. Um, yeah. And I, the irony is when I interviewed Dr. When I interviewed Z-Dog, Zubin Demania, I always laugh when I say Z-Dog, he probably said the same exact thing was that uh, the, the general public and the chiropractors, like they're not familiar with how much preparation goes into a patient visit, even though the assumption is that doctors just come in and spend five minutes with someone and then take off and then do their thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the training for a surgery uh, historically, you know, has been really malignant in the past in terms of hours, in terms of what we have to go through in terms of, um, you know, verbal kind of abuse. You know, I, I've been yelled at, I've been cursed out by senior <laughs> surgeons. Um, you know, just the, the toll that it takes on your body working 120, 130 hours a week uh, doing trauma, doing surgeries in the middle of the night. You know, I, I think that's the reason what inspired me to, one of the reasons inspired me to do my YouTube channel was because of that, because people need to see that side of medicine. Um, and when I was thinking about first becoming a doctor, I was, you know, you think about the white picket fence and, you know, these rich doctors, but, you know, in reality, that's not actually not the case. Uh, you know, re reimbursements are going down. Physicians are working longer hours. Um, so, you know, it's not that same profession that I once envisioned it when I was um, kind of a novice uh, pre-med student, but I totally agree with you. I think history, that's what they teach us too along this path. History is most important. You know, you confirm that uh, with your imaging studies. I think actually showing the patient what they should be doing in terms of um, uh, different modalities and exercises at home, something they can do uh, to, um, you know, maintain their, uh, their, their health. I think those things are important, and that's kind of my next chapter. My next um, is to um, – I'm starting actually a new YouTube channel just for spine, basically for patient education, all those Great. things that um, – you know, if a patient comes in and I say, hey, you have spondylolisthesis at L405 with some foraminal stenosis um, on the left side, they have no idea what that means, and I'm, exactly. I'm meeting with them for, you know, 20 minutes or so, um, you know, that – I I wouldn't even know what that means if I was uh, you know going to a doctor. So I think having something that they can go home and watch um, that's kind of my next goal, and that's one of my passions is just education. In the in the surgical world, how important is the psychosocial aspects of pain when you consider whether to uh, go go forward with surgery or to maybe hold off and recommend rehabilitation or uh, referral for cognitive behavioral therapy. Are you guys there yet in your education? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, some centers are kind of more kind of forward thinkers. At my fellowship, we actually had a psychologist that was on staff. So any there are certain procedures um, for certain insurance companies, like a lumbar disc replacement that requires a psychological screening before surgery is approved. So. Um, there have been several studies that have shown that, um, you know, patients that they have these psychological problems, if, they, if these are not addressed before, like a, uh, you know, a spine surgery, then the results are not as good. So um, I've already touched bases with a psychologist here in town to, um, you know, if there are some red flags or things that kind of 
like, hey, maybe this patient should go see a psychologist to make sure everything is fine before we proceed with surgery. So I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of centers haven't adopted that, but um, it's definitely something that the literature really supports. It also supports it for rehab too. And these manual therapies that we do, they're, they're definitely yellow flags that, and they're general outcome assessment tools that we can use that will indicate that this person's experiencing pain that's more psychogenic than mm. physiological at all. And they're, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, wasting their time and money if they're going to be uh, doing adjustments, manual therapy, rehab. Uh, there's, there's other, this, this pain is from a different origin and you're just wasting their time and money. So I, I'm well, really happy. I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, we're really happy that we're all getting there, sort of on the same page. It it definitely makes you change. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine being a surgeon for the last 20 or 30 years and then having to adapt to it. But the chiropractors and the PTs and everybody else have had to adapt to this new sort of uh, psychosocial aspects of pain. Um, another one yeah. we're going to, and you're probably going to have to, uh, or you'll. I mean, from a surgical standpoint. I don't know how much the um, the social determinants of health come into play, you know, yep. such as income inequality, um, the proper attention that somebody who is a person of color gets in a medical facility, and all that. You, it seems like you are. Are you feel? Do you feel like you're prepared for that aspect of pain and suffering and and all that that we have to deal with? Yeah, I'm not sure if you can exactly exactly be you know totally prepared for that. You know, me coming from an environment, well, trauma is uh, different, that, right? I mean, trauma is trauma. They're yeah. coming in, right? Yeah, but you know, if you're in a, an environment where uh, you know you're talking about these social determinants, uh, like say, example, you know, Shreveport growing up, where I didn't know any black doctors growing up. I had never seen one, never met one. Uh, you know, most of my friends, you know, if something was, um, you know, a medical condition, you know, they didn't have insurance to go to the hospital, including my family. So yeah, uh, most people would just push things off or kind of brush them aside. So that's kind of social economic kind of uh, situation and status. I think all those things need to uh, be taken into consideration. And me being from that environment, I think I can, can relate to patients and can understand what they're going to through and then try to um, help them, you know, with resources or get them the best help that I can. So I, I think that's why diversity in medicine is so important. And, um, and um, um, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, really good. Uh, it's crucial. Topic. It's crucial. Uh, yeah. Not many people know this. I don't know how much history, like medical history you guys go through uh, in medical school. But when, when there was reform in the late 1800s and early 1900s and they were doing this medical school reform because we can, we can just keep it very simple. Medical education, whether, whether, whether it was sectarian like chiropractic or naturopathy or one of these other sort of sects of healthcare or whether it was medicine, was not the best like clinical lab facilities. Uh, you can get, you know, there was diploma mills, there was all that sort of thing going on. And so they wanted uh, the Carnegie Institute put out some money to reform medicine. So they hired this guy, Abraham Flexner, and Flexner came out with the legendary Flexner report, which made all these recommendations for how to improve the medical education across the country. And uh, a lot of it was groundbreaking and very good stuff, but there were some questionable uh, conclusions that came from Flexner's report. One was that there were too many women and there were too many African-American 
uh, doctors and too many, too many uh, schools for women and too many schools for African-Americans. He had said some pretty racist stuff like, uh, like a, 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 an African-American doctor should never treat a white patient and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff that was like absurd. So all those schools, like the historically black colleges and universities that had medical schools, they disappeared. The women's universities that had medical schools, they all disappeared. The push was that for this, for your white picket fence uh, profession, in order for it to become a white picket fence profession was that it had to be a, like a rich white man's profession. That had to be the, the perspective. And it, it just kind of, it, that's like, um, a painful piece of history, you know, because <laughs> when yeah. you look at, especially for us in, in this world of back pain, and we know that back pain is, as the leading cause of disability in the world, it's, a, it's at a epidemic status. It's like how much of this all could have been prevented, how much research could have been done along the way, how much could these communities been better taken care of than they are now, and how, how, much, how much further behind have we been? particularly in educating uh, brilliant people, like getting people who are brilliant to serve the populations that would appreciate it the most. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the numbers speak for themselves, especially in orthopedics. Um, There's less than 1.5% of orthopedic surgeons in the U.S. are African-American, and even less than that for spine surgeons. Um, You know, I I know some patients that – uh, there's even some studies that show that um, African-Americans for joint replacements, they're less likely to receive joint replacements, heart transplants, and other various procedures, um, you know, which, which is very astonishing just to he- hear that, you know, that's happening in, in these days. But I think I'm a big proponent of diversity in medicine, and that's why um, some of my videos try to uh, just – showcase different professions in medicine not only you know minorities but you know women as well so um, that's kind of one of my passions but uh, going back to your question when you asked me about spine surgeons and what should chiropractors know or uh, what is something that um, chiropractors should know about spine surgeons what is there what is something in kind of in your field of chiropractic medicine that spine surgeons don't know or uh, something you can share for the surgeons out there. Huh. Well, I would say, unfortunately for our profession, we, we, we completely understand and we don't know how to address it per se. We apologize, I guess is the best word to say that we, we don't have a consistent product as in, you don't know what kind of chiropractor you're going to get when you decide to make a referral. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. There's just, uh, there, I don't know if it's good schools or bad schools. Obviously there's a f- philosophical thing with chiropractic. That's a big issue, but the, the product we get is inconsistent. I can feel very confident that if I make a referral to a surgeon, I'm going to get a consistent product. I might not get a consistent result because the results mm-hmm. always sort of vary, right? Mm-hmm. Each, each surge, each, each procedure has got to be an N equals one scenario where, uh, even if they're all somewhat similar, they've got to be s- different results, you know, and, and the different, different surgeons have different hands. So we're going to get different results on that end, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to get the same product. Like the patient's going to be taken care of the same way, uh, the, the referral base, the imaging, all that's going to come out very similar. But when you refer to a chiropractor, unfortunately you don't get the same result, the same product. You might so, get what you might yeah. get what you're afraid of. So I, I would like you to add, to mention the things that you're concerned about. 
and I'm yeah, not so, gonna, I'm not like yeah. super pro chiropractic. I'm not going to be here to defend chiropractic as much as you might think. Um, there, there are some things that need to change in this profession to keep up with everybody else. Yeah, so what would you suggest to a surgeon who um, wants to refer to a chiropractor and is, he or she is not sure of um, a, a good chiropractor to send to? Like, how would I know if I'm just starting my practice? Oh, well, that's easy. You, you go to the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance website and we have a map of all of our members on the map. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, I actually did that in San Antonio. Um, and uh, I saw there was one gentleman here we actually connected on yesterday. Um, nice. Online. Yeah. So. Um, and, and, you know, there's not a lot of time to, to call and ask a lot of questions, but affiliations, if they're affiliated with things like the American Chiropractic Association, uh, okay. the, the website, if you're sniffing around on their website and they, they discuss rehabilitation and, uh, and things of that nature, if, they're, if their website sort of hints or reeks of pseudoscience, some, mm -hmm. some questionable uh, theories about the spine and misalignments and, and, mm -hmm. and overemphasizing the, the, you know, posture is important when posture is, when, when posture is important, as we all know, but if they're sort of overemphasizing the shape of the spine and that they can somehow push the spine back into some sort of shape, I think that's questionable. I know gotcha. some people would argue with me, but those are the people that believe that it, it's important. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the reasons why we started the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance and the map was at least we can create a place where other professionals can come and say, I'm going to at least be somewhat certain that this is going to be a good referral. And Dr. and Z-Dog, he came up with the same idea. He's like, why aren't these people vetted? And we vet them the best we can, uh, but, but we're not responsible for the vetting process. There are some certification processes like the, there are, there are a couple diplomas in chiropractic. Uh, so postgraduate studies in orthopedics. So it's the diploma of the American Board of Chiropractic Orthopedists. There's a neurology one, which is a, a sticky wicket in Texas because the Texas Medical Association really questions the ability for chiropractors to even discuss the idea of neurology as in treating the spine doesn't have any effect on neurology whatsoever, but you know. Yeah. Um, but then you get a couple that you trust. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully the one, the fellow you found in San Antonio is a trustworthy person and you can ask them and they should know. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me about the psychological aspect. You know, I, I never really thought about that. If I was, you know, going to a chiropractor that that's in the back of their mind, something that they're actually thinking about and they may not do a certain um, adjustment or some type of treatment based off of that. So, you know, I, like, like we talked about earlier, I mean, this is a lifelong learning process and I, yeah. I learn something new every day. Yeah. And some of the, some of the chiros uh, that, that are older are keeping up and some of them stopped keeping up. They're just kind of running their crack shacks, you know, and they have, mm -hmm. they found the explanation to the patient that will get them as many visits as they can. And then they'll keep up with that explanation because it works. So they sort of stunt their own growth, but there are tons of chiropractors, particularly our folks that are really lifelong learners. A lot of this mm -hmm. psychosocial stuff is newer in concept. I mean, Lorimer, uh, Mosley and oh, I forgot Butler's first name. Uh, they're, they're pain researchers from Australia and they wrote this great book called explain pain. And, and it's a whole system of how to explain pain to a patient. So they understand why, why they're having pain and what they can do about it. And what, when that threshold or that light switch is flipped and it's like, this isn't pain that you 
can control anymore. You need someone to do something, AKA you need a surgical intervention. Yeah. And that, I don't, I don't know for you, but that would be a question I'd have for you. Is there, a, is there, I mean, there's so many different conditions to address, but in your mind, is it like a light switch of like, this person needs surgery, this person does not, or is there a lot of it depends rolling around in there? Yeah, you know, the decision-making in spine surgery can be very difficult. You know, if you ask 10 spine surgeons, hey, what would you do with this particular patient or in their case, show up their images, like at a, one of our conferences, you'll probably get 10 different answers. Um, just like you mentioned, you know, yeah. there's some chiropractors that are not really forward thinkers, you know, same thing in spine surgery there, you know, there's some bad apples out there and some surgeons that are real aggressive, some surgeons that fuse uh, for back pain, um, some surgeons who, um, you know, are, uh, you know, not necessarily doing the right thing in the patient's best interests. Um, but um yeah, I, I, I think, you know, for spine surgery, I, I think it's important to um, communicate with a surgeon, someone who's uh, easily accessible, someone who um, um, has fellowship training and, um, and spine surgery. And I, I think the results kind of speak for themselves. If patients are getting good results, I think, you know, indications are indications for surgery are extremely important. And, um, you know, it, you will have a bad result every time if you have the wrong indication. So uh, yeah. that's why I try to harp on just really being very conservative um, and then making sure sometimes double checking, triple checking that, you know, that's that level or what I plan to address is actually the culprit before going to surgery. So I think we're, we're in similar worlds here with different tools and different applications, but what we're trying to do in the rehab world is classify what a individual is going through. And if we can classify it appropriately, then we can provide the right intervention. So there's a, yes. great, a great book yep. called A World of Hurt. It's by Melissa Kolsky and Annie O'Connor. They're physical therapists. And it's a guide to classifying pain. And it's really a system for saying, for trying to figure out what type of pain the individual is going through. And if you can get the right type of pain, then you can provide the right tool. So Traditionally, chiropractic is always associated with the manipulation, right? Like people go mm -hmm. to, I'm making air quotes here, they go to have chiropractic. But when you go to chiropractor, what does chiropractic mean? It could be exercises, it could be therapies, it could be, you know, it's just a random, it's not always the adjustment. The adjustment's just a, an application. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out which, which application would be the most appropriate for what the person's experiencing is, is the bridge we're trying to cross here so that we can be sort of like a sniper. We can get in and get to the exact thing conservatively that might solve the problem before we move them on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think sometimes the best thing for the patient maybe is to not operate. Um, you know, as a surgeon, you know, we love to operate. I love to, you know, perform surgery. If I can be in the operating room all day, every day, you know. That's, but it doesn't work. Come on. Yeah. Surgery doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> that's, that's Tell me, so if you had 100 <laughs> surgeries, how many of those surgeries, quote unquote, worked? If I had 100 surgeries, if you select the right indication, 100 of them will work. That's um, what depending I'm talking on, about. Yeah, so, so depending on what type of surgery you're doing, um, if you're doing a huge scoliosis, you know, a, a T4 to the pelvis for a patient who has like an 80 or 90 degree curve, of course, those, 
you know, that, that's 100%. You're going to have some type of complication, whether that's sure. a wounded infection, and a UTI, and, you know, post-op BBT or something like that. that it just comes with the uh, territory. But I think um, if you select your patients carefully, your indications are um, appropriate, I, I think patients have very good results. And I, I think when pa- people deviate, surgeons deviate from this, and that's when, um, you know, patients may not do well from surgery. But I think that would be great marketing language if you were to market to uh, providers that would refer to you as the selectivity, how, how selective you are for looking for the right indications to indicate the right procedure. I know a lot yeah. of us would appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And the patient really has to, to prove to me that uh, they want surgery. Um, and it, it's one of those things where they have to like, doctor, I am dying. I cannot take this anymore before I operate on them, you know, because uh, surgery, you know, there's a lot of risks. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. And um, I'm a a strong believer in really conservative therapy. And um, that's why I'm really uh, interested in about learning more about, you know, the chiropractic approach and how patients can utilize this in the, uh, you know, the preoperative period or, you know, just to get them back to their, uh, their, their regular health. Um, as we're closing up closer to the finish line here, you got to give me, you got to ask me the hard questions. You got to get to the ugly stuff, the neck adjustments, the over-treatment, the, you know, the, the questions, you got to ask me the questions, man, the, the hard stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I wanted to say that to the end. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, you want your viewers to just like videos, you want them to stay around to the end. You, you don't want to, we don't. Well, I want to, I, I would love to wrap this up with some very um, important, much more important stuff at the very end about uh, your vision for the future um, and, and your vision for the, for the future for the education of, of people who came from communities just like you, because I came from a community, community very similar to yours, but still somewhat privileged. I mean, I'm, I have much less melanin than you, so somehow people have equated that with privilege, but I came up in a rough neighborhood too. Um, yeah. So I, I do want to go back to that, but until then, let's let's give these people the rough stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. So you know, about a year ago, when it kind of clicked to me that you know this is something that I wanted to uh, learn more about, uh, I, I created a video uh, about you know the, this whole phase. I'm pretty sure everyone's familiar with the whole Y strap and you know the uh, the distraction of the uh, cervical spine. Um, yeah, the ringy dingy and Y strap beef yeah, that ringy, they got going yeah, back and forth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so though, so I, I put this video out. I probably got two hundred emails. Half of it, half of those emails were people that were supportive of it. And they were chiropractors. Half of them, um, about a third of them, or half of them, were people that um, did not believe in it at all. And I, I got some nasty emails. Hey, how can you, how can you um, you know say this is fine to do, or you know how can you support this as yourself? You should be ashamed of yourself. So. You know, I told you that bigotry was out there. Yeah, so it, you know, it's a really it's, it's a dichotomy, and I, I wasn't sure um, kind of how to approach it next. And what are your thoughts if a patient came to you and said, "Hey, I saw this guy online, YouTube. He got a ring dinger. This is what I want." What would you say to that patient? And that definitely happens. There are people that are like, "Can you do the ring dinger on me?" And it's like, <laughs> um. Me personally, I I would rather do like a gentler long axis distraction, like a a much more gentler instead of a high velocity pull. Mm -hmm. Um, People need to understand those videos. So those videos Mm -hmm. are um, 
I forget what they're called, but it's like, it's the sound and the feeling it's, uh, I'm going to mess it up. It's some sort of acronym that there's like a neurological response when people hear and see those videos They're they're sort of tactile. They, they, they penetrate into a certain part of the brain. That's really pleasing. They do that with babies too. Babies will watch these package unwrapping videos and they'll just be totally hypnotized by them. So people see these videos and and I think they can feel the relief that the person might be getting. There's something about the popping sound uh, that, that is like psychogenic. And so they want that thing, but that might not be clinically indicated, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you know, and, and not everybody is getting assessed for cervical instability or Arnold Chiari malformations or, I think it's kind of cavalier in my personal opinion to just go and mm-hmm. start ring dinging everybody because they want it. Um, mm-hmm. But then I don't operate my practice like a spa and I'm not really there to people please. I'm there to get outcomes. So I'm different than some people. Other yeah. chiropractors see that the, the Y strap guy who's really just like, he's putting Instagram models into his videos to boost up his numbers. It's all, it's a like economy. Those, those two fellows are, are participating in this like economy where they're trying to drive likes to drive up their viewers to drive up their ad revenue and all that. It's not clinical care. It's an act. It's a show. Unfortunately, other providers see that other chiropractors see that and other physical therapists see it too. And then they want to go and they want the big numbers and they want all the likes. So then they run off and they start doing their own version of the ring dinger, which is trademarked by the way. So I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it out loud and the Y strap and all that. And it, it's not like, that's not good. That's all I really have to say about that. It's not good. Now, cervical manipulation does have its risks, but overall it is tremendously safe if it's done appropriately. And by appropriately means you need to, here's, here's what the, that sack, I think it was the Sackett study. So uh, Sackett took a certain number of patients that saw an MD for, for complaints and then ended up diagnosed with a vertebral basilar artery infarction. And then chiropractors mm-hmm. with the same. The occurrence rate was equal, which seemed to say that the patients were showing up to these offices, the office of choice, whether it was an MD or a chiro, and they were going to have a stroke. And the, mm-hmm. there was a temporal relationship, but not a causal relationship. So it wasn't the actual manipulation that was causing the stroke. The fact was the person was having a stroke, and then they sought, they sought attention, and then there was a result. So what we seem to think is that there's only a temporal relationship, but not a causal. But what the real problem here is that no one seems to be talking about is that that means that the chiropractors are failing to diagnose the stroke symptoms before they manipulate the patient. And as you probably know, it's very difficult to, unless someone's in a full-blown um, ischemic attack, there's like, there, there's no, there, there's not a lot of give, giveaway. <laughs> yep. An hour before a stroke, you really can't be like, oh, you, you've had a stroke. But what we do know is if someone's had head trauma, maybe you shouldn't be jerking their head around. That would be a great yeah. start. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think all of these, uh, this whole phenomenon, do you think it's given chiropractic medicine a bad kind of rep? No, no. It probably has helped the people who do those videos more than anything else. The people who hate chiropractic have always hated chiropractic and they always will. It's really a, um, like you, you, if, if you had all the people on YouTube and, and, and Twitter and all that who hate chiropractic and you, because I've done it before and you bring them, the evidence for efficacy. Uh, you bring them the guidelines that show that it, it is a worthwhile thing to do conservatively before you refer out for surgical or other interventions. If you bring them the facts, the actual facts of the matter, they won't listen to any of that whatsoever. It doesn't matter. 
that you're, you're talking yeah. to, you're talking to bigots, not people who are con, uh, mm. uh, critical thinkers because the critical thinkers can get through that. They're like, Oh, this is a decent study or they can parse out the study and say, this isn't the strongest study. Uh, and, and you can go from there, but with these folks, you can't, they, they would just rather, I mean, I've had like in, um, in, I have a Labrador retriever and we do, um, training. So like on a chat group, I gave my opinion about dog training and literally I've had people say, you're a chiropractor. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about, mm. about dog training. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know where that, you know what that feels like. I know you know what that feels like Yep. from a, from a yep. different point of view. Yeah. So what do you think can be done to, um, to kind of minimize? I mean, you, you mentioned the people that are, that hate chiropractors. What can be done to kind of reverse that or kind of, you think it's kind of education, you know, educating the public or what can, um, that's a great can. question. No, that's an awesome question. Yeah. So uh, Flex, the, that Flexner report, the Flexner report that changed the landscape of medicine and medical education in the early 1900s, chiropractors sought out their own version of that. They're like, how can we, we reform uh, our education? But more importantly, these chiropractors were asking, how can we reform our, our public relations, the view of our public on the profession? This was in the 50s or the 60s, I believe. And they hired an attorney. Uh, and he went through and, and looked at all this stuff and he said, well, in the court of law, you either need new evidence or you need a new jury. So we're not going to get a new jury. The, the public is the public and they feel what they feel. So do we have new evidence? And we do. Um, I think it's just really sharing the evidence and doing a damn good job, just doing a good job and being as integrative as possible. So people understand uh, where we're coming from and what we're trying to accomplish and everyone's got to be on board. So we definitely, you know, if, if you have 10,000 orthopedic surgeons, I don't know how many orthopedic surgeons there are in America, and you have a, a dozen or so bad apples, our bad apple ratio in chiropractic's a little bit too high. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit too high. Like there's a tremendous amount of good apples, but there's just, we need to bring the bad apple number down. And some of that bad apple stuff is people are hanging on to their patients too long because they really want to be the healer. And it comes mm -hmm. from that old sectarian, um, you know, village healer kind of idea that I'm going to be the one to fix this person. And that ideology needs to disappear. We need to understand that the person's the most important thing. And we all have to work as a community to, to take care of that individual the best we possibly can. Um, so there's a little bit of hero. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Leave the hero yeah, stuff I, to I the surgeons. Agree. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree. There should be a, a mostly di disciplinary a, approach to it. You know, um, there, there's some studies in spine surgery that show for patients who have a spine deformity, you know, if you have this multidisciplinary anesthesia, physical therapy, pharmacy, uh, the ICU involved, the intensivists and, and the uh, primary care doctors, um, that the, the patients actually do better. Um, when I was interviewing for fellowship, there were a few programs that did that and they met all the different disciplines, all the different professionals, probably six or seven different uh, disciplines in the same room going over cases. And, you know, they published multiple studies that show that, you know, that has uh, increased, you know, um, improved outcomes. And, and that's one of the things we do as, as surgeons, we really scrutinize the literature and I'm wondering, 
you know, um, is that one of the things that makes a lot of surgeons a little bit reserves, re reserved is, is because of the literature. Uh, a lot of what we do and pretty much everything that we do is based off of um, either evidence-based literature or anecdotal kind of evidence. But um, yeah, that, that, as a surgeon, we're constantly reading articles and we have journal clubs that we meet usually like once a month or lately it's been every week on Tuesdays and we just go over four or five articles and have discussions about them. Why is this already article a shitty article or, you know, why is this a good article? They, they should have did this a little bit better in their study. So um, that's kind of what um, kind of the picture for the for surgeons. But I do have a question for, for you. Um, say, for instance, I had a patient who came into my office who, you know, has some back pain, but mostly kind of some left leg pain. Um, you know, they have some foraminal some stenosis, lateral recess stenosis. I don't think that patient's ready for surgery yet. Why should I send him to a chiropractor versus a physical therapist? It doesn't matter. If you, historically, can, if, if you can tell yeah, the difference. Oh, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, historically, that's kind of the, um, it, it's like a trigger. Uh, you know, a patient comes in, that conservative route, that goes to physical therapy. Rarely did I see in my training where chiropractor was a part of that uh, equation. So that's where I hope to, you know, kind of mold and change my own approach to spine care and taking care of patients is to try to add that into my equation. Here's what we're about. This, this would be the statement. This is the classic Greg Rose quote. He's the founder of the Titleist Performance Institute. Um, if you can tell the difference between your chiropractor and your physical therapist, you've probably got a bad one. If you can't tell the difference, they're probably good. Uh, they're yeah. going to have the same approaches. There's a great program at the University of Pittsburgh. It's a primary spine care program, primary spine, primary spine practitioner program. Mm -hmm. And uh, this book, Primary Spine uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the book. It's, it's just called um, Primary Spine Practitioner Book. Primary Spine. <laughs> it's getting late. Um, yeah. Primary no Spine Practitioner Book. Let me get the right, cop, uh, the right title for you. Um, we're going to go through the same assessments, the same protocols, the same, uh, probably the same treatment parameters. Most of the primary spine practitioners, it's clinical reasoning and spine pain. I highly recommend if you want to really get your brain around the conservative ideas of, uh, of chiropractic and physical therapy, you're going to see these primary spine practitioners. They're either PT or chiro. It doesn't really matter. They're both taught the same program at the same time at the University of Pittsburgh. And hopefully that expands beyond that. But most of the students these days are learning these clinical reasoning and spine pain protocols um, there's two books, Clinical Reasoning and Spine Pain, Volume 1 and Volume 2. They're by Donald Murphy, and they're excellent. And they go through exactly what we would be going through in a conservative care environment, caring for somebody with low back pain, with some radiating leg pain, um, going through the assessment, the, the, his, the key history points to hit, the neurodynamic evaluation, uh, the rehabilitation, uh, 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 the rehabilitation protocols, uh, McKinsey, I don't know if you're aware of McKinsey method, mm -hmm. it's also called mechanical um, MDT, mechanical distraction therapy, or I forget that it's getting too late for those acronyms. I'm a long <laughs> ways away from the military now. So yeah, no worries. <laughs> but uh, that book, clinical reason and spine pain, there's one for the, the volume one is the low back disorders and volume two is the cervical spine disorders. Highly, highly mm -hmm. recommended. We have all of our FTCA people 
it's one of our recommended reading. Those books are recommended reading. Um, and we really try to, to hone in on those ideas. Um, so to answer that question, there is some, there should be some crossover you see between a chiropractor and a PT. I think when you send somebody to a chiropractor, you're going to get a little bit more of the passive care first. So you're going to get a little bit more of the hands-on and the manipulation and then a move into the passive care of rehabilitation. And then with the PT, you're probably going to get a lot more of just straight to active care rehab. And you know what? And that comes into play with that biopsychosocial aspects of pain. Some people have fear, fear avoidance behavior and they're just not quite ready to get into active care. They need to be worked into uh, the confidence that they can move their body, that they can hinge their hips, that they can bend their back safely, and they're not going to hurt themselves. But sometimes PTs just walk them right into these rote exercises. They get the visits they're going to get, and they kick them out. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And that's the problem with the chiropractic side where there's like too many visits. It's like, what's the difference between visit six of manipulation and some exercise versus visit 26? Is there going to be a huge yeah. difference in the outcome there? Uh, the guidelines don't seem to suggest that. Most of the guidelines would recommend much less care. Uh, you know, we're talking, um, you know, like if you look at AMA guidelines, all these other guidelines for conservative care, you're looking at six or eight visits and then a reevaluation to see if you've got the progress. And then maybe you can go a little bit more. But someone who's dropping ahead, like right out of the, ex right out of the gate from the first exam, like you're going to need 52 visits, run away. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. run away. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a solid point. And it goes back to the, the education part, you know, just instructing and teaching your patients, hey, when you go home, this is what you, even though you may not see me after these six or seven visits, but, you know, you need to continue doing these things. And um, I'm going to teach you what you need to do at home to take care of your, you know, your health and you know, your spine health. So I, I think that's extremely important. Yeah, that's where we're at. And I think I'm, I'm a big proponent of McKinsey, even though I don't know what the acronym stands for, the MDT. The, the concept there is progression of force. So you don't walk in on day one and just blow out with a Y strap their whole spine. It would be like, what kind of force can they tolerate? What's going to be, you know, with this brain that we all have that's saying, am I in danger or am I safe constantly? Am I safe or am I in danger? I'm not going to present them with a dangerous therapy, you know, perceptively dangerous, like, oh my God, he's going to hurt me or he's going to, he's going to rip my head off. I might just can you move your own head first? <laughs> yeah. And can we find yeah. some relief just with some real passive light therapy versus going in and trying to be a superhero? And there's just yeah. no superheroes in this game, except like I said, except you guys, you get to be the superhero. <laughs> no. Fine with that. Because uh, I get to live a life with really low risk and really low yeah. malpractice insurance rates. Yeah. And I don't have to be a superhero, but every now and again, I am. So there you go. Most of the times that I've been a superhero were in the history. They were never in the treatment. It was discovering a, condition that nobody knew they had it was never gotcha. like a magical adjustment good stuff so take that to heart kids now speaking of the kids i want to close this out with this subject matter which i'm i'm just you're you're learning so i don't even you're you're probably like four or five years younger than me i'm not sure you're learning you've you've now got past this step this step of um you know getting through the fellowship you know there's always going to be more learning to go that involves your career. But there's this other part of you that wants to do this other thing, to be big, bigger for other people so that they can be bigger in their communities. Do you, do you know where that's going to go yet? Do you have an idea? Or are you just getting started and you're going to figure it out as you go, like you've done with everything else? 
Yeah, I think for me, you know, I think um, representation is important. I think sure. I'm a strong believer in that you can't become something if you can't see it. So for me, I think um, it's just uh, create more content um, and showing my face more, trying to get more people to show their faces. Because I think um, my trajectory in life would have been a lot different if I would have saw someone who looked like me, who is a spine surgeon or a chiropractor or a physical therapist, you know, yeah. something that in you know, a really well respected and um, distinguished um, profession. So I think for me it is the education part, educate my patients as well as educating um, those from communities like mine that may not have the ability or the access to go to a physician. They can just go online and watch these videos. Hey, this is what you should be doing if you have this or, you know, talking about the silent killer hypertension or diabetes or those kind of medical conditions that um, people that don't go to doctors, they can find online. Most people these days are, you know, millions of people go to YouTube per day. Yes. And that's kind of my uh, kind of one of my goals and passion is to create more educational content and then put it in a um, format that is relatable to people. And um, that's kind of my whole goal. Um, fill in the blank for me. So there are no assumptions. Did you, because I've heard this from other friends, really good friends of mine that are professionals that are people of color. Did you have to work harder than everyone else and be better than everyone else at all times to get the, to where you are? A hundred, a thousand percent. A thousand percent. Yeah, you know, you know, growing up in Louisiana, uh, just a little bit of quick background. Um, a lot of my friends went to prison. My little brother went to prison. My mom was actually shot, and she's a, a T10 quadriplegic uh, due to, you know, battling a drug addiction that she's dealt with all her whole life. Uh, my sister went to prison. My dad joined a gang and sold drugs, used drugs when he was uh, younger. My cousin, who I grew up with, just got out of prison maybe three months ago. So being in that type of environment, um, I, I didn't have family members that even, you know, um, could point me in the right direction. You know, it, it was because of a medical magnet program that I came across that uh, got me, that kind of painted that picture for me. Like, wow, this is something that may be possible. So that's the reason why I'm so passionate about uh, showing younger kids who can just go online or giving talks and they can say, wow, that guy's a doctor. That, that's crazy. I want to do that too. So, uh, because when I was growing up, people wanted to be rappers or athletes. And, um, yeah. to answer your question, I think, uh, yeah, my classmates read a chapter twice. I read, I had to read that same chapter or, or wanted to read it 10 times. Or I read it six times, seven times. So that's kind of been my whole mentality kind of going through this, um, kind of, uh, process. You the first college graduate in your family? First in my immediate family, yes. Yeah, me too. My mom, too. you know, had, you know, had some high school. Uh, she didn't go to college. My dad had like one or two semesters of college. What's the underlying th thing, the underlying theme uh, that you would say next? So after that message, what comes next? Is it perseverance? Is it determination? Hard work? Drive? What is the thing that the that the people that you got to give this message to, what do they need to understand? Not, not just that I had to work harder, but that even if I worked harder, there was still plenty of room to quit. 
Yep. Yeah, I think uh, I would a probably a good word to summarize it all is grit. You know, having that perseverance, having that, um, you know, being very persistent, you know, no matter what your circumstance, what you're going through, you know, if it would have took me, you know, I started applying in 2007, 13 years later, I would have still, uh, I would have applied to medical school this year. You know, you have to have that same mentality. <laughs> And, you know, you, you have to have that same drive. If you want something, you know, bad enough, you know, you'll eventually get it. You just got to keep trying. That's great. Did you get the expert field medical badge when you were in the Air Force as a medic? No, no, I, I didn't. Um, you know, I, I don't, honestly, I heard of it, but I don't r recall what the qualifications, like what was required for it. Uh, do, do you remember? Yeah, I got it. It was a, uh, it was a written test. There was a field test with orienteering. Uh, and you had to assess uh, uh, casualties on the field. And uh -huh. then there was a, like a march, like a 12 mile ruck back. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it, but, but it was at Fort Sill. So it was in Texas heat. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I don't think I've never got that opportunity to uh, go through that, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's an army probably. thing. Yeah. It's an army thing. Uh -huh. And sometimes they invite air force people, but usually not folks like you that are actually doing the work. It's usually casuals in the back like me. <laughs> the chair force i was i tell people i was in the chair force i didn't i didn't see casualties in my life hey you know the air force we don't go anywhere unless we have fresh water and air conditioning so uh, <laughs> hey I'm, you know being in the air force allowed me to go to school get my undergraduate degree if i was in the army or marines i'm 100 percent sure i would that would not have happened they wouldn't give you the time no you wouldn't be allowed yep. to I'm proud to be in the chair force. <laughs> Me too. And I'm proud of you. I know this is just a yeah. beginning for you. Um, you've had to keep your head down and uh, we, we have, we, we understand it somewhat in the chiropractic profession. There's a very short time where we just got to keep our head down and get through school. And we, we, mm -hmm. we sort of sacrifice some of our identity and what we want to accomplish as a human being in that time frame. And then we get through and we get our degrees and our diplomas and our certifications. And then it's time to get to work. Um, and you have so much, potential to do so much great work not just in the or but for people who need motivation uh, we don't have many african americans or any people of color or enough women in chiropractic either it's just that we need to mm -hmm. we need to find people who want to care for other people and do it in a, in a fantastic manner and there's plenty of work to be done um, the only difference here is chiropractic's got a pretty low barrier to entry so if anyone wanted to be a chiro they can do it <laughs> gotcha yeah, you know, you know it, just do it, your undergrad and get that done, and and we would we would love. There's no barriers. Come on in. Yeah, gotcha. No MCAT. You no. Know, wow, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's no, yeah. there's no. That's a problem. That's a problem, my friend. There is no entrance exam. Yeah, I, I had to take my entrance exam. I took it three times. Uh, still didn't score really high, but you know, I've always never been a really good standardized test taker. But uh, yeah. It's one of those things, but, you know, one thing I would say to the listeners out there, you know, if you're a chiropractor or even a student, you know, um, I would say I challenge you to pick up a phone, call a spine surgeon or a surgeon in your area and just have a conversation about a patient with them. Uh, you know, I think my kind of thing is to try to increase some collaboration between the specialties. Um, I would love if a chiropractor called me and said, hey, I have this patient in office, uh, I have his images. Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, just do that communication, an open line, uh, that collaborative approach. And hopefully in the future, uh, just like with the Four Thinkers group, um, hopefully we can have some more case discussions. And I know I plan to do that in the next month or so, go over some cases and 
hey, what would you guys do with this patient? And I'll explain what, what I would do. And um, hopefully that can um, increase some more of the collaboration between the specialties. Yeah, that's super valuable. I appreciate you for that. And I know the students are going to come out being better chiropractors for that too, which is yep. good for these patients. Um, I think we got pretty far. I think we did pretty good. You could have asked a whole lot of harder questions. You're just, you're a very nice person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I think from our point of view, we're very passionate about taking care of people. I, I think we put our clinical, our clinical care above anything else. We definitely want to help people. Some people want to help and be the hero, like I said before, to sometimes to the detriment of the process. And if, if they were communicating openly with the surgeons and with the other physicians uh, and we were all collaborative like the guidelines say we should be, I think we'd do a lot better for our reputation as chiropractors and all of our reputations as a healthcare service system that is trying to do the best for one of the most difficult conditions on the planet Earth to deal with, which are spine-related pain and disorders. Yep. Um, yep. Like I said, when we first started this, I respect the hell out of you. Uh, congratulations on beginning your journey, I guess you could say. And um, where you're at, it's, uh, it's late in Texas. I love Texas. God bless Texas. Um, and hopefully we can do this again at some point. Absolutely. Dr. Maybe, thank you so much for the invite. And, uh, you know, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for your service as well. No, thank you, Dr. Webb. Thank you for doing what you've done, which, um, like I said, I respect the hell of you. It's not easy. It's not easy to have that kind of grit. So let that grit shine, all right? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Yep. Yes, sir. Bye-bye.